When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to More Than Amused Podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts, hosted by Stani and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female artists of the past. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to More Than Amuse. I'm Stani. And I am Sadie. And today we are talking about Kate Bush who has become more recently popular again due to her song being in Stranger Things 4. I saw a hilarious TikTok the other day that was like, they were talking about what the song of the summer was going to be. And so they had like the Harry Styles, like music for a sushi restaurant. Mm -hmm. And then they had like a different one as well. Mm -hmm. I don't know. They had like a bunch of different like songs that had just recently come out that were going to be like the song of the summer. Yeah. And then out of nowhere, it has like, Kate Bush walk in with like running yeah. up that hill and then she's like oh sorry am I in the right room and everyone's like wait what <laughs> it in the 80s yeah. and now it's like a record topping song again I know I think yeah. it's so cool I mean confession is I personally didn't really know who Kate Bush was I I'd, I'd heard this this song before mm-hmm. um I've kind of heard her referred to as like a musician's musician you know, like musicians really love Kate Bush, oh, but interesting. maybe like general public because I've in preparation for this episode, I listened to a lot of her music. Actually, I, I listened to the album that this song is on and then a couple of other like her, her biggest hits. Like I said, I didn't really listen to her. I am a musician, but I you know how people have like comfort TV shows. I yeah. have just comfort music and I really don't depart from the music that I like and sometimes I'm like <laughs> I probably would be like a more well-rounded musician if I like listen to more music <laughs> but I'm I am not passionate about music discovery I just like listening to what I like and then I write my own so <laughs> anyways I wasn't like I said I wasn't as well versed on her before but it was so fun to introduce myself to her music and then of course learn about her that's way fun. I listen to a lot of 80s music, but mm-hmm. I don't think I've heard like a ton of her stuff. Yeah. So well, we'll I'm talk excited. too. She was really, really big in the UK, but she didn't have a lot of crossover into the US, which is kind of weird because like, yeah, I don't know. I feel like when you think of the Beatles, there's a lot of crossover people, but yeah, for some reason, she just never hit over I here. I think especially during that time period, because you've got Queen and the Beatles, mm-hmm. Elton John, like there was a lot of there crossover lot. because people would go on like a US tour after they got big in the UK. Yeah, but so, there just that's kind wasn't of funny, a ton. Yeah. Are you a Stranger Things fan? Yes. I honestly I am. never watched past season two. What? I know. I, I like loved season one, probably like watched it all in like, you know, two, three days. I don't know what's my deal with TV shows. I just sometimes I'm like, oh, that's a lot. Anyways, yeah. but now that it's like out, I saw so many people talking about, what is it, Vecna? Is that how you say mm-hmm. it? And yeah. for the longest time, I was just like, what is everyone talking about? <laughs> and then finally, I like saw someone like put the scene in, you know, yeah. where 
Sadie Sink is like elevating, levitating. I don't know. Okay. Levitating. Thank yeah. you. Yes. You're good. <laughs> I should also put a, at the beginning of the episode, listen, guys, I just, I got two cavities filled today. I was on laughing gas for a while. <laughs> I took a two hour nap and now we're here recording. So if things are muddled, <laughs> we, I can, yeah, I can blame it on the laughing gas. <laughs> yeah. I guess we should also do like a slight a spoiler warning. I don't know. It's been out for so long, but like no yeah. one I know has actually watched the whole part one of season four yet oh yeah Uh uh-huh but there was like things I wanted to talk with you about it and now I guess you haven't seen it I'm so so sorry it's okay (laughs) maybe I'll go and start watching it but I have to now I have to watch season two season three yeah season four all of it but but worth it I'll do it there's like a part where a song which is the whole thing with Sadie saying Mm -hmm. a song is what saves them from like the monster because it opens up their brain enough that they're able to like escape from mm-hmm. being trapped by him because they talk about how like music reaches different parts of the brain and everything else. It's very cool. That is cool. And uh, I wanted to know like what song you think would save you. Ooh, I have that seen people talking moment. about that on. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> is my is it so lame for me to say All Too Well by Taylor Swift? No. Because I feel like so casually cruel in the name of being honest. Like I feel like that could knock me out of any <laughs> trance. <laughs> I love that. That's my first oh, wow. my first guess. Maybe Jolene. Ooh, that would be a good one. I feel like if soon as you hear that little guitar riff, like yeah. I'm, I'm back. I'm I'm here. I'm ready. I love that. What about There's yours? Definitely, I don't know if I can pick like one. That's true. It's so hard. Yeah, it's really hard, obviously. I think like Light On by Maggie Rogers, maybe. <gasps> oh, good one, good one. Would love that. Um, and then I also couldn't help but like think of a bunch of like 80s songs. It, it, that like, feels fitting. Yeah. Right. Like you're like, if I'm going to be in an 80s movie running away from an 80s monster, I have to be saved by an 80s song. Like, right? let's stay on theme here. Absolutely. Yeah. Like put on Like a Prayer by Madonna. Or, oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, or like It's All Coming Back to Me Now by Celine Dion. <laughs> you know? That's Just, a good like, one. Blast that. Uh-huh. Oh, that is good. Um, yeah. And I'm sure there will be like more songs coming in part two. I'm trying not to spoil anything, but I'm really excited to see one specific character. What ends up being like there. Yeah. Man, now so. I'm like trying to think of like maybe You'll Be in My Heart from Tarzan. That's another one that just oh, like. Oh, that would be so cute. Or like, Man, I Feel Like a Woman. That little there like, bah, bah, like that da, was, da, da. I'm, I'm again, I'm back. I'm ready. Like I know the minute you hear let's go girls, you're out. I'm like, oh yeah, let's go girls. <laughs> yeah. No. It's a fun question. I feel yeah. like a very fun thing to ask. So yeah, everyone can think about that. Well, shall we talk about Kate Bush and the yes, episode? Please tell me all about her. Cool. Well, I actually am kind of starting with a state of the arts that is maybe more of a current state of the arts. And this is kind of like what made me realize, hey, I want to talk about Kate Bush today, is I found this article that The Ringer did. Yes. And I honestly, I really loved the article. I'm going to try my best not to quote it too much and just like read the article for everyone. (laughs) It was really long, but I thought it was like really good and really informative. But... It was called Kate Bush running up that hill and the end of music charts as we knew them. And then it says, 
Thanks to Stranger Things, one of Art Pop's most reclusive figures has almost inadvertently found herself with a top 10 charting hit. Is it a fluke or a sign of the times? And there was actually a recent kind of study that came out. Maybe a study isn't the right word, but like analytics or, you know, something that came out that basically showed that for the first time, old music was doing better than new music. I saw a lot of people talking about it on TikTok, just, you know, the sides of TikTok I'm on. And some people were like, this isn't really that big of a deal. People are making this a big deal because the truth is, is there's just more old music than there is new music. And so, of course, maybe more people are going to be gravitating towards that. Another like potential argument for this is just the fact that now that streaming has been around for a long time, older audiences are now now actually using Spotify and using Apple Music. And so, of course, now we're going to see those listening habits reflected because, you know, like before, if like maybe someone who's used to consuming music via CDs or, you know, yeah. maybe they have a massive iTunes library that they actually purchase. Like maybe that's how they listen to music. But I think, like I said, now older demographics are using, using these newer mediums to listen to music. Yeah. So that could also be part of it. Um, I also think like a huge part of it would be TikTok, right? Yeah, exactly. Because uh-huh. so many sounds, like I think when I first downloaded TikTok at the beginning of 2020, like everyone yeah. else, um, Break My Stride. Yeah. Was I forgot. Yes. That yeah. was a TikTok sound. Yeah. That's the one like sailed in a little rowboat to China or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, <laughs> that one was trending. I know some Billy Joel songs have gone viral. Yeah. Obviously, Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Astley is yeah. continued to be a meme for ever ever <laughs> and even um stevie nicks like that song yes. got big on tiktok uh-huh. i mean i feel like that song's always been big but <laughs> yeah but they kind of they become this sound bite and then there's mm-hmm. a revival of everyone looking them up again to like figure out where was this from like abba has a bunch of songs that are going viral oh right now yeah like chicka chickatita like that very yes. end piano part that Which everyone's like beautiful oh. part <laughs> i know and i'm like how is this <laughs> the last like 30 seconds of this song it's freaking beautiful <laughs> It's gorgeous. Oh, man. I know. But yeah, that's what also the article goes on to talk about is like the way that TikTok is now being used to, re, you know, to, to reintroduce these older mm-hmm. songs in a way that it was maybe hard to break through into these younger audiences in the past. Another thing that, though, they did bring up that I actually kind of thought was interesting that before there was only like one way to make music, right? Like you had to have a mm-hmm. record deal and then those record deals would push it to record stores, push it to radio. So it was actually a lot easier to like tell or for like music to make cultural impact. Maybe not easier is the right word, but like if it was top of the charts, it was because it was reaching, you know, like it had some type of cultural impact and it was actually a reflection of the music that people were listening to at the times. But now Mm. like the top of the charts, like there might be songs on the top that you never heard but that's yeah. just because in certain, you know, listening places or listening, um, I can't think of the word, but like certain listenerships are streaming it a ton. You know what I mean? And like maybe streaming doesn't sense. actually reflect the music people are listening to like around their homes or in their, you know, on their ride to work. Like it's maybe harder for music to have as much cultural impact currently because of the way that it's so there's just so much of it in excess and it's so easy for like 
anyone to do it. I don't want to say that. Like I'm like belittling my own work. I'm like anyone <laughs> could do this. But like, you know what I mean? It's so much more accessible. Yeah. I mean, even for me, like I'm going to shout myself out here today. But like my song got on like a pretty major Spotify playlist today. I'm so stoked. But like no, I awesome. did that all. I was doing this in my bedroom. I didn't need <laughs> a record label to do these things and make these moves for me. And like I said, maybe some argument for like, oh, newer music isn't doing as well. It's because that like newer music isn't like impacting the culture in maybe the ways that older music was, which like, I don't know if that is true because I feel like even, you know, 20, 30, 50 plus years ago, like there were a lot of songs that maybe reached number one that like you don't really, you know, listen to or care about. Yeah, I feel like there's always going to be like, a song of the season, you know, yeah. whatever, that kind of fades away. Like those one hit wonders that like hit. Yeah. One hit wonders have always been a thing. Yeah. And then they like disappear and then they kind of come back and have a revival. Like that's just kind of the way it goes. Yeah, absolutely. In music. And I, yeah, I think it's definitely, it's easier to make music. It's also easier to listen to a lot of music now than it's yes. ever been. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause yeah, like a lot of those people might've been listening on CDs, but a lot of other people may never have bought the CD because yeah. they were like, why would I buy a whole CD for Billy yeah. Joel and I've never heard a song? You know what I mean? Absolutely. But now you can just look them up. And so. the, the article actually kind of brings that up exactly where it talks about how like we're in such a unique time where placements like this can actually make you have like, because I think this song, I think Running Up That Hill hit number four this week, which is crazy, crazy, right? Yeah. And that is so much higher than it ever got when it first came out. But they yeah. talked about that, that like before, if you we're listening to Stranger Things and was like, oh my gosh, I really love this song. You would go to the record store, buy the Stranger Things soundtrack CD, and then oh, you would yeah. go play Kate th- the song from it, right? But now yes. you can go to Spotify, look up Kate Bush, and just play her music. Like you don't even yeah. have to listen to anything, you know, with Stranger Things at all. And no, so you don't. I, a lot of people I don't even think are listening from the Stranger Things soundtrack. They're just going straight to Kate Bush's exactly. original release. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah. Other cool examples of this of like old music returning to the charts after like it was featured in a movie. So Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, it charted higher in 1992 and it reached number two than it did in 1978, 76. I read about that. Yeah. Wasn't that with the release of... It um, was Wayne's Space- World. Yeah, Wayne's World. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was going to say Bill and Ted, but same movie, yeah. not though. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. But yeah, so after Wayne and Garth headbanged to it in Wayne's World, people watched it and it rose to number two. And I feel mm-hmm. like that movie is why we know that song, you know? Maybe, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I love that. What an iconic song. That's There's a good one. also Seal's Kiss from a Rose. I don't know this one personally, but it didn't even make the yeah, Hot 100. It's- or I probably do know it. Da, 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 oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, duh. But it didn't even make the Hot 100 when it was released in 1994. But then it hit number one the following year after it was put in Batman Forever. So it's kind of like shows like it's really cool how these type of placements. Another example of this that happened more recently, I'm going to read this little paragraph, but it says you have double, triple, quadruple the older songs returning not only into our consciousness, but onto the charts, says Jason Lipschutz, the executive director of Musica Billboard, who recently Mm -hmm. covered this running up the hill anomaly. He said there are new avenues for old songs, particularly those that came out only a few months or years back to break through, largely due to how streaming and social media have changed the way people listen and impacted the charts. One example of this is Lizzo's 2017 single Truth Hurts, which parallelled a soundtrack 
soundtrack inclusion on the movie Someone Great, which that I didn't realize. 2017. Uh-huh. But then it got a lot of TikTok buzz and social media buzz. And ultimately, I thought this quote was funny, steamrolled into every wedding reception for the whole summer. By the time the song hit number one in 2019, Lizzo was promoting an entirely different album. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that was that old of a song. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, in 2017, which I yeah. thought is another cool thing, too, is like, with the way social media and maybe the way that music industry has changed now it makes it so that like release week isn't everything you know like you could have a song flop and then weeks later or years later maybe something yeah a random trend happens and the right person discovers it makes the right video and it's everywhere this was another thing another quote that i thought was cool a renaissance doesn't exist in a vacuum kind of referring to the fact that you know Kate Bush just coming back. Um, Mm -hmm. Pop stars tend to hang around until they overstay their welcome, which is what makes Bush's notorious reclusivity particularly alluring. She has largely avoided live shows her entire career and rarely grants interviews. Just the fact that she posted a brief statement about the Stranger Things flurry was notable industry news. For decades, discovering her discography has felt like discovering a secret stash that was hiding in plain sight. And then this quote said there isn't the acoustic bluegrass project that she did at 47 or something like that that just doesn't exist and I'll talk about that of like she kind of she does kind of go away and she hasn't really made music for a while which I don't necessarily think that that's like something to be applauded per se like I think it's cool that Paul McCartney is still making albums because yeah why not if you you know love making music why would you stop when you're old you know no, I agree. I feel like that kind of has a lot of toxic ideas behind it of being like, oh, once you get old, then you overstay mm-hmm. your welcome. You I know? agree. Like, when you think of like Billy Ray Cyrus, who had his Country Road, Take Me Home revival with Lil Nas X just a couple yeah. years ago. You yeah, know? true. Like, and Dolly Parton, I don't, has she, re- yes, she yeah, released she's still releasing stuff mm-hmm. with the book that she co-wrote. <laughs> How cool. I know. Yeah. So it's like, let people live their life. Like, you know, they've had this long, wonderful career. They can do whatever they want now. There should be a lot of freedom in that instead of like, what are you doing? Like, uh-huh. Why are you still here? I know. I Exactly. So like I said, I I don't want to applaud that per se, but I think that's maybe what makes it like made this blow up possible. Because another thing the article talks about is like these placements happen all the time, but we don't always see it like reaching number four. But I think it was just that perfect combination of just like such a pop culture, like such a TV show in pop culture right now, like everyone's watching Stranger Things, apparently, except for me. Yeah, I'm working on that. (laughs) And like, it was such an important part of the TV show. Like it wasn't just this casual thing that happened once or twice. And then for the fact that TikTok grabbed onto it, it was just like that perfect storm of just, you know, it rose Well, there was like a few things they did in Stranger Things and I made it like unavoidable. Like you couldn't just passively like hear the song. Uh It was like they had it on her headphones playing multiple times before. Then they have this whole thing of like, what's her favorite song? What's her favorite song? Like struggling to find the record. Then they put it in and play it for her. Then they create like a two hour loop for her on cassette tape because she has to listen to it constantly. And then on top of that, her and Lucas have a conversation about how he's like such a big Kate Bush fan because it saved Max's life. So he says Kate Bush Mm. and then she goes, oh, you're a Kate Bush fan saying it again. 
And then he's like, yeah, she saved your life. So you not only have the song playing multiple times in a loop mentioned on multiple instances, they also have the artist's name mentioned to the point that you know all of it by the end of that episode. You're like, uh, oh yeah, running up that hill by Kate Bush. It was like, literally you can't the escape it. Storm. No, like, you know <laughs> what the song is. That's so cool. I'm going to end with these last two paragraphs. Sorry, apparently most of the episode is just going to be talking about this whole article. <laughs> it was a really long article, but I thought it was really, really interesting. So no, I would recommend so it. Um, so and this talked about kind of like how maybe current or active musicians now. One thing is, could this make it harder for new musicians to break into the music industry? It's been harder for newer musicians to do that and make a living off of their music. No matter how talented a musician you are, it's difficult to fight for plays with Kate Bush and Bob Dylan when you're working a day job on the side. And then the person who was getting interviewed for this says that it's a confusing time for artists but doesn't think it's necessarily bad that older music is getting increased attention mostly it messes with the conventional music industry which is i think locked into less than optimal system or framework anyway like why do we always assume that the most recent work by an artist is the only thing that they have to promote so i don't know like i understand like the sentiment of like oh yeah like how does you know like a brand new songwriter compete with you know the icons or the legacy acts per se and I understand that but like I just think the idea of like oh no the music industry is changing is like okay but have you ever heard of a musician talk about the music industry like no one like no one thinks it's been good before so (laughs) yeah like maybe it's time for things to change shake it up a little you know like And I think it's kind of cool that maybe music can reach a point where it's a little bit more evergreen, you know, where you Mm -hmm. can have like Kate Bush, you know, right next to like Harry Styles on the charts. Yeah, exactly. Why not? Yeah, Yeah. we've got decades and decades of music. It's Mm kind of fun that everyone gets to participate in it again. Yeah. And isn't it encouraging for a newer musician if like maybe you are the kind of person who is making more experimental rock right? Mm -hmm. Like the fact that now there is a potential place for it on the charts. You know what I mean? And I don't know, like with people talking about like, oh, the music industry is changing. It's like, good. You know, like I said, like I am a musician. I work a day job. I record vocals on the floor of my parents' basement. And yet like (laughs) I've started to make a decent amount of money from it am I living off of it no but like my music is at least self-sufficient and I can kind of make the money back and also too just like the idea that only being a musician is worth it if like you're famous or something you know like yeah no I get it I don't know I think it's a cool time to be a music maker and I think that this makes it even cooler because like you said how cool is it that Harry Styles and Kate Bush could be right by each other and have the same listenership you know Mm mm-hmm I think it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Me too. Okay. Well, moving on to good old Catherine Bush, actually. So for a brief overview, she is an English singer-songwriter, pianist, and record producer. 1978, at age 19, she topped the UK singles charts for four weeks with her debut single, Wuthering Heights, becoming the first female artist to achieve a UK number one with a self-written song. Um, Wow. I know. And since then, she's released 25 UK top 40 singles, including the top 10 hits, The Man with the Child in His Eyes, Babushka, Running Up That Hill, Don't Give Up, and King of the Mountain. (laughs) All 10 of her studio albums reached the UK top 10, including the UK number one albums, 
Never Forever, Hounds of Love, and the compilation The Whole Story. And she was the first British solo female artist to top the UK album charts and the first female artist to enter the album chart at number one. Accomplishments. Exactly. Let's talk about her life. So she was born July 30th, 1958 to an English doctor, a general practitioner, and her mother was an Irish nurse, Robert Bush and Hannah Nay Daly were their names. And she grew up with her elder brothers, John and Patty in a 350 year old former farmhouse, which sounds very charming. Yes. Yeah, very charming. And she came from a pretty artistic background. Her mom was like an amateur traditional Irish dancer. Her father was an amateur pianist. Her brother was a musical instrument maker and her brother was a poet and photographer. So it sounds like art was very alive in that home. And both of her brothers were involved in the local folk music scene. So like I said, I think it's cool. They were all very active parts of their art communities. Um, yeah, that's awesome. But her family's musical influence inspired her to teach herself the piano at age 11. And she also played the organ in a barn behind her parents' house. Just magical. Why was there an organ in that's, the barn? <laughs> I have no idea, but I love that there was one. And she also played the violin. And then soon she began composing songs and eventually started adding her own lyrics. So at the beginning of her career, so she attended St. Joseph's Covent Grammar School, which was a Catholic school nearby in Abbey Wood. And during this time, her family actually produced a demo tape with over 50 of her compositions, which apparently was turned down by record labels. But Pink Floyd guitarist David Gilmour received the demo from Ricky Hopper, who was a mutual friend of Gilmour and the Bush family. And... Mm. Gilmore was impressed, so he decided to help the then 16-year-old record a more professional demo tape. So how cool, like the Pink Floyd guitarist, like, you know, that small unknown band, Pink Floyd. (laughs) That small indie artist. Yeah. (laughs) But three tracks in total were recorded and paid for by David Gilmore, which I think was really cool. And it was produced by his friend, Andrew Powell, who actually went on to produce Kate's first two albums. And then, this is cool, the sound engineer Jeff Emmerich, I think, is how you say it? He had worked with the Beatles. So, you know, just very casual (laughs) people that she's like you know, in proximity to. Um, That's incredible. Like, yeah, the guitarist of Pink Floyd, sound engineer of the Beatles. Okay, whatever. But the tape was sent to EMI executive Terry Slater, who signed her. The British record industry, what I thought was interesting at the time, it says that it was like reaching a point of stagnation where progressive rock was actually very popular and like rock performers were growing in popularity. So record labels were looking for the next big thing that that were experimental. So Mm. I think the fact that she was so experimental, like actually played in her favor, which like nowadays, if you're like some experimental rock composer like I don't think a record label is gonna take you under their wing that's just not how it works Mm. like for one thing you have to have a very established artistry and established fan base before a record label will even look your way but she was actually put on retainer for two years by Bob Mercer who was a managing director of EMI group and I'm pretty sure Bob Mercer like worked with Queen and like a lot of big acts at the time. I'm pretty sure in the movie Bohemian Rhapsody, Bob Mercer is a character. I might be wrong about that, but I I recognize the name and then I Googled it real quick and he definitely had like worked with Queen. 
So according to him, he felt Bush's material was good enough to release, but felt that if the album failed, it would be demoralizing. And if it was successful, she was too young to handle it. However, in a 1987 interview, Gilmore disputed this version of events um, and blamed EMI for initially using the wrong producers. So they just made a bunch of songs for those two years. After the contract signing, EMI gave her a very large audience, obviously, and she also enrolled in interpretive dance classes that were actually taught by Lindsay Kemp, who was a former teacher of David Bowie. Another, like, you know, no name. Wait, why did she take interpretive dance classes? This actually becomes a pretty major part of her artistry. And the way she performs is she will, like, a lot of interpretive dancing in like I said, in her music videos and whenever she would do live, live performances. So cool. when she was in that like two years with signing the contract before she put out any music, she was basically still doing schoolwork, dancing, and just recording a bunch of demos. She wrote and made demos of almost 200 songs in those two years. And then another thing is from March to August of 1977, she fronted the KT Bush Band just at public places in London. And then finally, in August of 1977, she began recording her first album. So... (laughs) What I think is cool about this is like she spent two years just fully in her art. And I'm sure that's like what made her so, I don't know, just trust her artistry so much. And also I just, you know, learn what you need to do of like what you want your sound to be like and the confidence, I think, to do it. Like two full years where you're just taking dance classes, Mm -hmm. making 200 songs, like you know what you're doing after that. That's amazing. Um, You know, Van Gogh actually did that. He drew for two, like for a couple of years before mm. he ever touched a paintbrush because he wanted to understand composition before he ever learned how to paint. So I think there is something to be said about that. Like going back and just doing the basics for a long Mm -hmm. time. Yeah. For her debut album, The Kick Inside, she was persuaded to use established session musicians instead of her Katie Bush band because I think like she had family members and friends in her band with her, but she retained some of these after she had brought her bandmates on board. Her brother, Patty, yeah, like I mentioned, so he was in the band. He played harmonica and mandolin, which I thought was cool. cool. I know. And then Stuart Elliott played some of the drums and became her main drummer for the rest of the albums. But The Kick Inside was released when she was 19 years old with songs written when she was as young as 13. Isn't that crazy? Holy cow. Uh Uh-huh. I love that. Apparently, EMI, they wanted... So there's a more rock-type track called James and the Cold Gun to be her debut single. But Bush, who I guess had already had a reputation for asserting herself in decisions about her work, insisted that it should be Wuthering Heights. And then two music videos with similar choreography were created by Bush to accompany the song. The studio version sees her perform in a dark room with mist while wearing a white dress, suggesting that her character is a ghost, as is the case with Kathy in the novel. I haven't read Wuthering Heights. Have you? No, I've heard it's really depressing. Same. That's kind of why I'm like, (laughs) I stay away from depressing books usually because I don't like putting that much effort into something for me to be disappointed at the end. (laughs) You know, I 100%, yeah, I agree with that. But it is a classic. Yeah, it is a classic. (laughs) But the other music video is an outside version sees Bush dancing in a grassy area in Salisbury Plain that was inspired by the novel's moors while wearing a red dress. So it was definitely inspired by the novel. 
But in the United Kingdom alone, the kick inside sold over 1 million copies with Withering Heights topped the UK and the Australian charts actually and became an international hit. So I love that she like asserted herself on that and then became an international hit. Yeah. Love um, to see it. Like I mentioned earlier in the overview, she became the first British woman to reach number one with a self-written song, which is cool. Other singles from this time, The Man with the Child in His Eyes, it made it it actually onto the US Billboard Hot 100, but it only reached number 85 in 1979. But she went on that year to win an Ivor Novello Award in 1979 for Outstanding British Lyric. And then according to the Guinness World Records, Bush was the first female artist in pop history to have written every track on a million selling debut album. It's like kind of a lot of subcategories in that, but still cool. (laughs) Wow, that's kind of crazy that she was the first. Yeah. But but I guess like self-written stuff wasn't like a very big deal. That's kind of what I was thinking is I think that's when the industry maybe started changing so that people were writing their own songs. But, you know, leading up to it, it wasn't very common for artists to write their own music. But yeah. Yeah. So she was the first woman to have written every single track and have it be so successful. As far as like why she didn't do so well in America, Bob Mercer, who was her manager and like signed her to EMI, blamed her lesser success in the United States on the American radio formats, saying that there were no outlets for Bush's visual presentation. But what I thought was interesting is that EMI capitalized on her appearance by promoting the album with a poster of her in a tight pink top that like emphasized her boobs. Um, And then in, in an interview with NME, In 1982, she criticized the choice and said, people aren't even generally aware that I wrote my own songs or played the piano. The media just promoted me as a female body. It's like I've had to prove that I'm an artist in a female body, which I thought I really appreciated that. Very Um, poignant. (laughs) Yeah, literally. In late 1978, so just the following year, EMI persuaded Bush to quickly record a follow-up album, Lionheart, to take advantage of the success of her debut album. The album was produced by Andrew Powell and it was actually assisted by Bush, so she hopped on the production as well. And it gained high sales and spawned the hit singles with Wow. It didn't quite reach the level of success that The Kick Inside did. It reached number six in the UK album charts. And apparently she went on to express dissatisfaction with Lionheart, feeling that like that album needed a little bit more time than I think Mm -hmm. her, you know, her record label was willing to give her. What I thought was really cool is she actually set up her own publishing company called Kate Bush Music and her own management company to maintain control of her work. Members of her family, along with Bush herself, composed the board of directors. So I thought that was cool. Like from yeah. the very beginning, she recognized that like it would be important for her to maintain control of her work. So even though she was part of this record deal, she still, you know, created her own publishing company so she could own all the publishing under Kate Bush Music. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I find that very ahead of her time. That's what I was just going to say. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that's I feel like incredible. that's such a com- like that's a conversation that is maybe becoming more prevalent in the music industry now. Mm-hmm. So I, I was like... amazing. She was very ahead of her time. Following the release of her second album, she was required by EMI to undertake a heavy promotional work and a very exhausting tour. The tour of life began in April 1979, and it lasted six weeks. 
It was described by The Guardian as, quote, an extraordinary hydra-headed beast combining music, dance, poetry, mime, burlesque, magic, and theater. Which, what? I'm like, I want to see that. I know. Can we go back in time? I know. I I meant to do this before, but I like want to like just go on YouTube and see if there's any video proof of those shows. That sounds incredible. I have no idea what how that all blends together. I know, but I guess the show is co-devised and performed on stage with a magician named Simon Drake. And Kate was involved in every aspect of the production, choreography, set design, costume design, and hiring, like everything. She was such an active part, which again, like, I think this is, that's what's so cool about those two years is it seems like she just became so aware of what she wanted her artistry to be when she had the chance to like do things like this. She just knew exactly what she wanted to do. That's amazing. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. And the show is noted for the dancing, like I mentioned, complex lighting and her 17 costume changes per show. And this is cool because of her need to dance as she sang Sound engineers used a wire coat hanger and a radio microphone to fashion a headset microphone. And it was the that was the first time that someone had like used the headset microphone that like I associate with Britney Spears in the early 2000s. But yeah, it was the first used by a rock performer since the Spotniks used a rudimentary version in the early 1960s. So someone had kind of done it before, but like she definitely took it. And I love that they like literally used a wire coat hanger to like make it because it just didn't exist (laughs) that's crazy Uh how do we get her a vegas residency that's my question (laughs) like 17 costume changes a magician like just Uh reading about her performances and her works i was researching her just listening to the album and it just filled me with so much joy that i was just like i need to i need to see this so next stage of her career Her next album was Never Forever that was released in September of 1980. And this was her like second jump into producing and she co-produced it with someone named John Kelly. Her first experience as a producer was actually on her live on stage EP that was released after her tour the previous year. The first two albums had resulted in a definitive sound evident in every track with orchestral arrangements supporting the live band sound. And the range of styles for Never Forever is much more diverse than that, veering from a very straightforward rocker violin to like a more wistful waltz of army dreamers. Like This just makes me want to listen to every single album yeah. she's put out. And also Never Forever was her first album to feature like synthesizers and drum machines, which was obviously <laughs> very, like very 80s, you know. Oh, yeah. And this was 100%. right, came out in 1980. This was her first record to reach the top position in the UK album charts. It also made her the first female British artist to achieve that status, the first female artist to ever enter the album chart at the number one spot. And her top telling single from the album was Babushka, which reached number five on the UK singles charts. Two years later, she released The Dreaming, which was the very first album that she produced all by herself. And then with her newfound freedom of, you know, being her own producer, she actually experimented with a lot of production techniques. She created an album that features a diverse blend of musical styles and is known for its near exhaustive use of the Fairlight CMI, which I believe is a synthesizer. The Dreaming, I guess, though, received a mixed reception in the UK. Critics were baffled (laughs) by the (laughs) dense soundscapes that she created. And I think she created it to become less accessible. In a 1993 interview with Q Magazine, she said that, quote, 
that was my She's Gone Mad album, which I love that that's what she coined it and she owned that, you know? It's kind of fun. She's like, let's throw something in here and throw everyone off their game for like, a bit. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm just going to yeah. have fun with this. Why not? That album, though, became her first to enter the U.S. Billboard 200 chart. It only reached number 157, but still, I thought that was funny that, like, that was the lowest charting album in the uk but that was the first one to actually make it yeah. onto the u.s chart so that's hilarious the critics are baffled and the united states is like sure we'll take this one like i mean we won't do amazing things with it but we'll take it um we're gonna take a quick break just to spotlight one of our new favorite women artists okay so the person i wanted to spotlight her name is lydia burton and her handle is LydiaBurton.art, L-Y-D-I-A, Burton has an O-N. Um, and her bio says she's an art teacher and a cool mom and a sort Aww. of illustrator. And I love her stuff. They're like, she has some lettering. Yeah, it kind of looks like a little collage like paper cutout kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, but just really like bright and colorful and just so fun and she does have prints she has an etsy shop so you could get a fun colorful they are fun and colorful it's not easy having a good time even smiling makes my face ache that's a quote (laughs) i think that's cute or this one i'm a hip old granny who can hip-hop bebop dance till it drop and yo yo make a wicked cup of cocoa (laughs) (laughs) i love all these quotes this is adorable Plus, she has like little prints of sushi or just like bathroom items, like a rubber ducky, bobby pins, toothpaste, toilet oh, paper. Yeah. Just like fun. Yeah. Like, I love the one with the stamps. Yes. I don't know how to describe it. This is the hardest thing ever about an uh, audio podcast is that it's like, it's like, really cool. Just trust us. <laughs> it's cool. Now go look for yourself. <laughs> like, you've got to look them up because I don't know how to explain art very well sometimes, but no. <laughs> Oh, man. But yeah, just really fun. Very, very cool. And I love it. My artist is Mariko underscore Coda. That's M-A-R-I-K-O underscore K-O-D-A. The artist is Naomi Vona, and she is a London-based Italian photo archival parasite is what her bio says. (laughs) And, um, listen they're just it's just cool again i'm running into the same issue where i'm like i don't know how i'm supposed to explain this it looks like she takes a vintage photo yes and then like draws on top of it Mm-hmm. this like for this more recent post so i created these pages during my live zoom classes so she does zoom classes which is cool which is from fashion ed to protest and she said that the idea was to transform entirely a fashion magazine into a visual desi- diary, creating a bridge of communication between the meaningless ads and my personal point of view about the fashion industry. So love it. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. And there's just really cool art. And if you go to her website, her online shop, she has art classes online. She has abstract art, art kits for adults, which I think is such a good idea art on wood, collage art, cards, and stickers. So just so many like cool ways that you could part- like potentially, par- I said partake of her art, but I don't think that's the right <laughs> way of saying it. I, I like it. Cool. 
enjoy her art anyways also she looks like she does commissions so i would absolutely go check her out it's really beautiful the things that she's making i love these yeah me too it's like the mix of like a vintage photograph but then with like like modern and i love like the colors she uses this is so fun yeah i might actually end up getting one depending on how expensive they are I have a frame that I got that's like really big and I've been trying to think of like something to put in it, but I like couldn't figure out exactly what because I'm already putting like Hilma off Clint prints in my kitchen. Oh, yeah. And and so I was like, okay, if I have those in there, then like I kind of want something more modern in here, but I don't want to do like just a quote and I don't want to buy just like a society six print. You know, I was like, yeah. I want to do something like cool. Like I have a podcast about art. Like I, I should, should have, have cool stuff, cool. yeah. <laughs> but I didn't know what to put, and I actually think this might be exactly the thing. Yeah, it's so beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, these are way cool. All right, now back to the show. What I thought was so cool is, so I'll talk about it later, but like her songs and music aren't necessarily autobiographical. They're very much telling stories. So... For this album, she looked far outside of her own personal experience. She drew on old crimes films for There Goes a Tenor, a documentary about the Vietnam War for Pull Out the Pin, and the plight of indigenous Australians for The Dreaming. Houdini is about the magician's death, and Get Out of My House was inspired by Stephen King's novel The Shining. I love that. Yeah, so what I thought is so cool, and I'll go through, like, the more I talk about it, it was just so cool reading about all of the different stories and things that she told in her music. And again, like I said, it just makes me want to go and listen to literally every single thing she read, but also like look up the lyrics and look up what, you know, the history of every single song because like there's just so much rich storytelling here. That's amazing. I feel like we could use more of that. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Because like Folklore and Evermore, that was part of the reason I loved them so much is because they weren't autobiographical like they were about but they were just telling stories Mm -hmm. you know like I think it's kind of fun sometimes to just tell a story I think there's something that maybe yeah culturally we've come to expect in songwriting is that it has to be autobiographical to mean something or for Mm -hmm. us to connect with it but yeah I think there's a cool like we saw that more recently with Taylor Swift and just saying like no I'm just telling stories about people and yeah, it makes me want to try and do that more because like it. it seems fun. Let's get your next EP and it'll be completely about, I don't know, whatever you want. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll write something based off of a Stephen King novel. Who knows? Sure. You know what? Cool. I'm just I'm just coming up with dream project is taking the artists that we've talked about here in More Than a Muse and making an album inspired by the forgotten artists that's what i wanted for that art show that we've been talking about where we like yeah where everyone kind of takes a historical figure that we've covered and creates something modern based on it yeah wouldn't that be amazing that would be amazing all right everyone just let you know this is something we want to do one day so start (laughs) preparing your your mind definitely it would be so cool In 1985, Hounds of Love was released, which is, of course, the the album that Running Up That Hill is the very first opening track on. 
What I thought was cool is because of the high cost of airing studio space for her previous album, she actually built a private studio near her home where she could just work at her own pace. Hounds of Love actually topped the top charts in the UK, knocking Madonna's Like a Virgin from the number one position. Whoa. So that's what I think is crazy. It's like she's literally like saying like, buy Madonna, knocking Madonna out of her place. (laughs) And like, she's just not as, you know, as much of a pop icon though as Madonna, but she was huge. What I thought was cool is the album took advantage of like the vinyl and cassette formats of two different sides. The first side of Hounds of Love contains five accessible pop songs i mean accessible is in quotes because how accessible is it i don't know but it included the four singles running up that hill cloud busting hounds of love and big sky running up that hill actually reached number three in the uk charts and actually reintroduced bush to american listeners at the time it reached number 30 on the billboard charts in okay 1985 but the second side of the album is where she gets a little bit more experimental. The Ninth Wave takes its name from the Tennyson's poem. Idols of the King was about the legendary King Arthur's reign and his seven interconnecting songs joined in one continuous piece of music. So very experimental. What? So she put seven songs together into one. Well, I think that like the seven songs, it's like if you listen to them in order is all supposed to be one continuous piece of music. And it's about King Arthur's reign. If I'm understanding it right. Why has nobody else done that? That's so I know, cool. That's what I'm saying. I'm like, ah, this sounds so fun to like make music and tell stories this way. I'm just like, I don't know. who. And this is something That's I've been amazing. thinking about is with my, albeit like smaller successes, con- you know, comparatively, like I've started to get some hate comments and people being <laughs> mean about my music. And, you know, it's been kind of like hurtful. But at the same time, I was like, you know what, if you're so worried or if people are so worried about everyone liking their music, then no one is going to make seven continuous songs about the legendary King Arthur's reign. Like, of course, that is not for everybody, but I'm so happy it exists, you know? Oh, 100%. Like, how cool of it that someone was like, I'm going to create this art. And it's even cooler that it reached number one on the UK album charts. Oh my gosh. I think like you've got to remember too that there's always somebody who hates something. Something. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Like the greatest thing in the world could be someone's least favorite thing. And yeah. that's that's how it that's works. How it goes. Yeah. yeah. And I, I don't mean to make this all about me, but you know, it's mainly just like it was inspiring for me to like learn about the ways that she was just so willing to experiment and I think experiment so fearlessly. You know, Mm -hmm. because I think that as an artist and a musician, you just have to do what you want to do. And, you know, it's awesome if people like it. But like, are we making art so that people like it? I mean, kind of, because it'd be awesome for people to like it. But you know what I mean? Like, what is what is the real function of it? And it's just to create art that you love. I think especially right right now in the world like that's what we need more of with like Halsey talking about how she couldn't even release a song she wanted to release unless they could come up with a viral soundbite for TikTok you know that like honestly we need more weird crap going on right now in the art world like that's exactly what we're in need of we need a seven continuous track (laughs) about King Arthur's reign let's break the mold here (laughs) yeah like that would be great and very refreshing for Mm -hmm. something new you know to like take over 
Exactly. But that album actually earned her the nomination for Best Female Solo Artist, Best Album, Best Single, and Best Producer at the 1986 Brit Awards. Same year, she actually did a duet with Peter Gabriel and had a UK top 10 hit with the duet Don't Give Up. Fun fact, apparently Dolly Parton was Peter Gabriel's first choice to sing the female vocal, but she actually turned his offer down. So I thought that was kind of fun. And then that year, EMI released her greatest hits album, The Whole Story, but she actually provided a new lead vocal and like refreshed the backing tracks on Wuthering Heights and recorded a new single for inclusion on the compilation. And yeah, so I thought that was cool that like, even though it was like a greatest hits album, she still didn't like take the easy way out. You know, she was like, yeah, "Yeah, but I'm going to re-record stuff Um, and make it live up to her standards at the time. And then at the 1987 Brit Awards, she won the award for Best British Female Solo Artist, which I thought was cool. This is kind of a side note, but greatest hits albums aren't really going to be a thing anymore, are they? I don't think so. Because the reason they used to release them is so you could listen to all of them on the same CD. Disc. Mm-hmm. Now you don't have to really worry about Because you can that. just make your own playlist on Spotify or only like the songs that you want to. Yeah. Because I was just thinking, I was like, oh, that's really early in her career to have one of those. And then I was like, there's so many newer artists that don't have a greatest hits album. But it's just because like, they the don't point? do them anymore. Yeah. But I feel like there's also, <laughs> I mean, you go on to Spotify and like, this is Taylor Swift's playlist. Isn't that essentially yeah, like Taylor's greatest, greatest hits? hits? Mm-hmm. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. They're just not marketing it as an album. Because I guess, why would you? Yeah. But that's interesting. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. No, it, it is a good point because, yeah, it's definitely <laughs> not a thing anymore. No. Released in 1989, so next stages of albums here, there was The Sensual World, which was described by Bush herself as her most honest personal album. One of the tracks, Heads Were Dancing, Heads We're Dancing, I mean, was, this is a crazy story. Not Anyways, but it was inspired <laughs> by her own black humor and is about a woman that dances all night with a charming stranger only to discover in the morning that he is Hitler. So that's what that song's about. The title track drew its inspiration from James Joyce's novel Ulysses. The Sensual World went on to become her biggest top-selling album in the U.S. It received an RIAA gold certification four years after its release for 500,000 copies sold. And then in the U.K. album charts, it reached the number two position. There is a single from the album This Woman's Work that was featured in a John Hughes film, She's Having a Baby. And there was a slightly remixed version that appeared on the album The Sensual World. So in 1990, there was a box set for the woman's work that was released and included all of her albums with their original cover art, as well as two discs of all of her singles, B-sides, recorded from 1978 to 1990. And what I thought was cool is in 1991, she released a cover of Elton John's Rocket Man, which reached number 12 in the UK single charts and reached number two in Australia. So she was Love huge that. in the UK and Australia that she recorded a cover and, you know, it got to the top. Yeah. I love it when covers like do really well. Me too. I don't know why. It just uh-huh. like makes me joyful. <laughs> it does. I agree. Her seventh studio album, The Red Shoes, was released in November of 1993. The album gave Bush her highest chart position in the U.S. and actually reached number 28. But the only song from the album to make the U.S. singles chart was Rubber Band Girl, which peaked at number 88. In the U.K., the album reached number two and the singles Rubber Band Girl all reached the top 30 with the red shoes moments of pleasure and so is love all of them were in the top 30 so 
and then this is cool so she actually directed and starred in the short film the line the cross and the curve which featured music from her album the red shoes which itself inspired by the 1948 film of that name it was released on vhs which i guess you know early 90s yep (laughs) in the uk but also received small cinema screenings around the world she actually had initial plans to tour with the red shoes but that did not end up happening So what she did is she deliberately produced her tracks live for that album with less studio production that had like been a very major part of her previous three albums. And the reason why is because she's like, okay, if I'm going to go on tour, I need to make sure that we can recreate these songs live. But because she did that, I guess the result really polarized her fan base because they had previously really enjoyed the fact that there were so many layers and intricacies to her compositions. But but because of that, though, they maybe had to like because there wasn't so much focus on the composition, maybe there was more complexity in the lyrics and in the emotions and previous albums. So unfortunately, she didn't end up touring, but I thought that it was interesting that she kind of made this album with touring in mind. And so, you know, did her best to make sure that they could even be performed live because maybe her previous works couldn't be to the scale. That is such an interesting problem to have. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> Where it's like, it's so complex that you can't yeah. perform it live, but that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And nowadays too, like it's pretty common for like people to have instruments on stage, but also backing tracks, like maybe filling in the mm-hmm. synth parts and things like that. I truthfully don't know how common that was in like the 80s and 90s, like with probably, it being so new, you know? Yeah, probably not at all and honestly. or maybe i don't know if there was like a part of her that like wanted to like you know maybe there's like some like musical purism about wanting everything to be live for a live show i'm not sure but yeah i'm yeah, sure like the technology know. is definitely not what it is now where it's like mm-hmm. you know everyone has their in-ears where they can all hear the music and still be perfectly together and have it not be a big deal yeah. at all but during this time she actually suffered some personal loss she lost her lead guitarist, Alan Murphy, who she had started working with in 1979. Her mother, Aww. Hannah, too, she was actually really close, also passed away. What I thought was a sweet story is the people she lost were honored in the ballad called Moments of Pleasure. However, her mom was still technically alive when Moments of Pleasure was written and recorded. And she describes playing the song to her mother, who thought the line where she is quoted by Bush as saying, every old sock meets an old shoe, was hilarious and couldn't stop laughing, which I think is <laughs> sweet. That's cute. So after this, she actually took a pretty long hiatus. So after the release of the album, she dropped out of the public eye. She had originally intended to only take one year off, but actually 12 years passed before her next album released. Um, that is a long hiatus. I know. Uh, her name would occasionally come up in media with like rumors of her new album release, but the press kind of viewed her and presented her as like this more like eccentric recluse, kind of comparing her to Miss Havisham. Is that how you say it? From Charles Dickens' Great Expectations? I'm not as familiar with that um, reference. I don't know. But anyways. I've, I've only ever seen it. I've never tried to say it out loud. So yeah, same. Sure. <laughs> it's like one of those names that you only see and then when you're like forced yeah. to say it out loud, you're like, wait, uh-oh. <laughs> but anyways. But in 1998, so just a couple years after her hiatus started, she gave birth to Albert, known as Birdie, who was actually fathered by guitarist Dan McIntosh, whom she met in 1992. 
In 2001, so, you know, many years later, she was awarded a Q Award as Classic Songwriter. 2022, she was awarded as Ivor Novello Award for Outstanding Contribution to Music and performed actually that night. So yeah, 12-year hiatus. But I think, you know, she had a baby a couple years in. It sounds like she was probably yeah. just focusing on just being there with her son. Good for her. Yeah. Her eighth studio album, though, Ariel, was released on double CD and vinyl and came out in November of 2005. The album single King of the Mountain had its premiere on BBC Radio two months prior. The single entered the UK download charts at number six and would become her third highest charting single ever in the UK. And it peaked at number four. Her album entered the chart at number three and the US chart at number 48. So she was gone for 12 years, but then came back and her album hit number three, which I thought was so cool. Awesome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And her album Ariel was divided into two sections each with its own theme and mood the first disc was subtitled a sea of honey features a set of unrelated theme songs including king of the mountain birdie a renaissance style ode to her son I love that Joanne, which was based on the story of Joan of Arc and mm. this is crazy there's a song like pie but it's the title is just the like the sign of pie Oh, like the math okay. sign. And she sings 117 digits of the number pi. What? In, is that all of the lyrics? I don't know if that's all it is or if that's just a part of the song. But again, oh just like gosh. what I love so much is like, I just don't think anything this experimental, like I don't think it would hit the top of the charts in nowadays. But who knows? But I want it to. Yeah. <laughs> I can't. I <laughs> I, yeah, like I said, I listened to a lot of the music as I was just yeah. researching, but I'm still like, I got so much more I need to dive into here. Oh, man. Okay, I had to look up the lyrics. Okay. It looks like she has lyrics. Okay. And it's about a guy who's obsessed with numbers. I guess that makes sense. And, yes. And then she sings some of the numbers and then she goes into the chorus and then sings more of the numbers and then goes into a chorus again. All right. So... Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be listening to Kate Bush for the rest of the week. Me, so yeah, absolutely same. <laughs> so we're good here. What the heck? That is the coolest thing I've ever heard. Like, why not? You know what I mean? That's kind of what I'm thinking. It's just like, yeah, why wouldn't I? I don't know, because you can. Good for you. I feel like if Harry Styles or Taylor Swift released a song like this, it could hit the top of the charts 100%. I That's true right mm-hmm. so why not why not write a song about pie and not the dessert no nope, <laughs> the numbers, the numbers. <laughs> and sing 117 digits i mean why not like if your <laughs> character not? is obsessed with numbers like of course they would want to talk about pie i'm here rules. for it i am so here for it <laughs> me too anyways <laughs> the second disc though of this album subtitled a sky of honey So the first is a sea of honey. Second is a sky Mm -hmm. of honey. Features one continuous piece of music describing the experience of 24 hours passing by. (laughs) I wish you guys could see that. I was just going to say that. I wish this was a video podcast right now because your eyes just got filled with like so much genuine joy. (laughs) That is the coolest thing I've ever heard. I know. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I love stuff like this. So like as a graphic designer, we're constantly having to come up with like, concepts for yeah. things like this especially uh-huh. in art school mm-hmm. this kind of stuff would get a's like you could not believe <laughs> yeah i mean that makes sense 
it's like an art student's dream be like I wrote one continuous song uh, throughout a bunch of different tracks about 24 hours so be like <laughs> wait what <laughs> I have to say okay I was like I said I was mentioning and I don't let me I'm looking up Spotify to see what exactly the song is if there's any like Kate Bush super fan out there like I'm sorry for like not giving her the credit she deserves whatever okay there is a song called Waking the Witch that I, I did have to change because I was just listening passively. But there's this like almost like demon voice <laughs> that comes in in the song, which I guess it's called Waking the Witch. Like, of course yeah. it does. You have to listen to it. But I was like okay. just alone in my basement and I was just like had headphones in and I was like, you know, I don't really feel like I'm in the mental state to be like, <laughs> you know, like have this like demon voice directly in my ears as I'm just like trying to do nice research over here (laughs) that is a valid concern yeah (laughs) I'll go back and like appreciate it for what it's worth but yeah go listen to waking the witch maybe on like a car ride you know yeah (laughs) exactly like if I'm in the right mindset (laughs) let's do it oh my gosh okay well I just realized we've been recording for a long time but I don't (laughs) care anyways let me make sure I didn't miss anything So a couple more about her albums. 2007, she was actually really asked to write a song for the Golden Compass soundtrack. I don't think I ever saw that movie, but I did hear about it. Yeah, that had like a ton of previews. There was like a polar bear. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah, I don't think I ever watched it either, but I remember hearing about. I remember seeing so many previews, but yeah, I never actually went to go see it. It was based on a book, right? Yes. Uh huh. She wrote a song in reference to the lead character called. Lyra and it was used in the closing credits of the film what I thought was so cool about this is according to Del Palmer she was asked to compose the song on short notice and the entire song was completed in 10 days so I thought that's cool May 2011 she released the album director's cut that comprised 11 reworked tracks from the sensual world and the red shoes it was I thought was cool it was recorded using analog rather than digital equipment which I think just like goes to show that she like like I said like she's kind of the musician's musician where like a musician thinks it's cool to just re-record everything using analog rather than digital you know like maybe like the casual listener isn't gonna listen and be like no way she recorded it in this format you know but a musician like that sounds cool and like because why not why why not it if if you're a musician like that's kind of fun to do things like that definitely that makes sense. Mm-hmm. All the tracks have new lead vocals, drums, and instrumentation. And some were actually transposed just because she was older. And so, you know, to accommodate for her lowering voice. Three of the songs, including the woman's work, had been completely re-recorded and even like had some lyrics changes, which I also think is cool just to like recognize that like, hey, I can change my own body of work. You know, like it sounds like she yeah. was so much about the artistry that she was even willing to change her own songs if she thought that there was like a better way to do it later. Her next studio album, which was 50 Words for Snow, was released on the 21st of November in 2011. What I thought was cool, it actually features a appearance of Elton John on the duet Snowed in a Wheeler Street. It contains seven new songs, and the album's songs were built around her like quietly playing jazz piano and Steve Gadd's drums, and they use both sung and spoken word vocals in what a critic said, a supple and experimental affair with a contemporary chamber pop sound grounded in crisp piano, minimal percussion, and light touch electronics. 
billowing jazz rock soundscapes interwoven with fragmentary narratives delivered in a range of voices from shrill to Laurie Anderson style cooing, which I just love. That's just a beautiful review, I thought. Yeah. What I thought was cool next is that there was maybe a little bit of a potential revival for her song Running Up That Hill. She was actually asked to perform for the 2012 Summer Olympics closing ceremony, but she actually declined but instead, a new vocal remix of her song Running Up That Hill was played. So I think, like I said, there was like almost like the chance for that song to be revitalized, but then it maybe probably didn't reach as big of it, it is obviously now. 2014 through 2021. So March 2014, she announced her first live concert in decades, which was Before the Dawn, which is a 22-night residency in London. Tickets sold out in 15 minutes. And the concerts received universal acclaim. An album of recordings from the concerts before the dawn was released on November 25th of 2016. With the release of that album, she became the first female performer to have eight albums in the UK Top 40 album charts simultaneously, which I think wow. is cool. I think her career just keeps like almost like coming back in waves and circles because her fans just love her. And whenever she comes back, they're like, yes, please more. <laughs> and then what I thought was cool is on December 6th of 2018, she published her first book, How to Be Invisible, which was a compilation of her lyrics. And then in 2018, she also released two box sets of remasters of her studio albums. And what I thought was actually kind of cool is that there were vocals from Rolf Harris, who was actually convicted for multiple sexual assault charges they were all replaced by her son birdie in those albums so i wondered if she, maybe she re-released those albums because she was like i don't want him you know associated with my work so and i thought it was cool she put her son to be there another fun random thing is in september of 2019 she released this is french ne ton fui pas and un basser d'enfant on vinyl in france as a limited edition promotional single because why not and then, of course, 2022, there has been this resurgence, which we talked about with Stranger Things. Like I mentioned, I think it's at number four this week, which is really cool considering in the 80s, it reached number 30. But talking about her artistry, like I mentioned, she uses a lot of like historical or literary references just from the very first single it was based on emily bronte's wuthering heights and it was called wuthering heights she's described herself as a storyteller who embodies the character singing the song and has dismissed efforts by others to conceive her work as autobiographical her lyrics have been known to touch on obscure or just weird subject matter. The new musical Express noted that Bush was not afraid to tackle sensitive and taboo subjects in her work. Apparently, The Kick Inside is based on a traditional English folk song called The Ballad of Lucy Wan about a pregnancy and a resulting suicide. So about an incestuous pregnancy, I oh. guess I should mention that, and a resulting suicide. So she wrote a song about that, which like you wouldn't maybe think so. There's also Kashka from Baghdad, which is a song about a gay couple. Out Magazine listed two of her albums in their top 100 greatest gayest albums list, which I thought was cool. She has re referenced G.I. Gurdjieff in the song Them Heavy People, while Cloud Busting was inspired by Peter Reich's autobiography, A Book of Dreams, and his relationship with Wilhelm Reich, which... I'm pretty sure was a main figure in the Holocaust. So, mm. you know, just like crazy, like, like yeah. I said, she's just not afraid to talk about things that you wouldn't expect people to write songs about. She's 
probably a genius, right? Like her IQ IQ is probably like... I mean, my thing is is if she knows all of these references, she must know a lot about history and read a lot of books. So... Oh, yeah. That's cool. That's kind of what's really cool about a lot of this stuff that she's doing too is that like there's Mm -hmm. so many references to things that like... I don't know, like people know about, but like people don't really like know to write it, know them. enough to write a song yeah. too. <laughs> so it's really cool to yeah. see something like that. Absolutely. Other non-musical sources of inspiration was horror films, which kind of influenced the gothic nature of her songs. Hounds of Love, which samples the 1957 horror movie Night of the Demon. The Infant Kiss is a song about a haunted, unstable woman's infatuation with a young boy in her care, which was inspired by Jack Clayton's film The Innocence, which was based on novella The Turn of the Screw. Her songs have also occasionally combined comedy and horror to form dark humor, such as Murder by Poisoning in Coffee Homeground, which is an alcoholic mother in Rantan Waltz, and The Upbeat Wedding List, which is a song inspired by Francoise Truffaut's 1967 film of Cornell Woolrich, The Bride Wore Black, about the murder of a groom and the bride's subsequent revenge against the killer. So, oh, interesting. Like I said, just like so many like obscure references yeah. that you wouldn't maybe think of all in Honestly, her songs and kind of makes her stories. the perfect fit for Stranger Things with like some horror. Yeah, dark that's humor what the um, that article I referenced earlier. They were like, she's li- like her music was made for this kind of backdrop. You know, like yeah. these are the exact inspirations that she was drawing from in making her music. So, when she released her statement about it, was she like? happy with the revival Mm -hmm. okay good (laughs) I I should have copied and pasted it but it was pretty much like this is so cool like love you thanks for listening you know Mm -hmm. it was it was very sweet as far as her influence so (laughs) I like just went to Wikipedia and I was like people influenced by Kate Bush it was just like a huge paragraph of like so many musicians that we know that have referenced her and have record of referencing her so like I said she's definitely a musician's musician of just like obviously like inspiring storytelling here i guess like more notably coldplay took inspiration from actually running up that hill to compose their single speed of sound in 2015 and adele stated that the release of her third studio album 25 was inspired by bush's 2014 comeback to the stage also according to a biographer courtney love listened to Bush among other artists as a teenager. Tricky wrote an article about the kick inside saying her music has always sounded like dreamland to me. I don't believe in God, but if I did, her music would be my Bible. That is quite the quote, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. um, in 2019, Pone, who is an ex-Fonky family member, released Kate and Me, which is an entire album created from samples of her work. He claimed that she was the best artist of the last 40 years. 2020, Grazia magazine conducted an interview with UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson. When asked about the five most influential women in his life, he placed Kate Bush at the fifth spot after deliberating between nominating Queen Elizabeth II, Margaret Thatcher, and Kate Bush. So, you know. (laughs) In addition to her music, though, her dancing has also been critically acclaimed and proven really influential, as well as like just enduring in the popular consciousness critics have noted her pioneering synthesis of music and movement called her work modern dance at its most powerful and this is kind of cool there's like a reoccurring the most withering heights day ever event where thousands of people gather worldwide to cre- recreate her dance routine from the withering heights music videos and it's the outside version where she's seen dancing 
with this red flowy dress. So apparently this is like an event. I think it's an annual I event. I love that. Can we go? Yeah, like where all these fans come together <laughs> and just do the dance. Um, a quick note about her personal life and then that will be all. But Bush was in a long-term relationship with the bassist and engineer Del Palmer from the late 1970s to the early 1990s. She later married guitarist Danny McIntosh. Something I thought was kind of interesting is that the length of time between albums has led to rumors concerning her health or her appearance. In 2011, she told BBC Radio 4 that among the time between albums was stressful. Quote, it's very frustrating the albums take as long as they do. I wish there was there weren't such big gaps between them. But in the same interview, she denied that she was a perfectionist saying, I think it's important that things are flawed. That's what makes a piece of art interesting sometimes. The bit that's wrong are the mistakes you've made that's led onto an idea that you wouldn't have had otherwise, which I thought was like a cool way to perceive art and to view it of like, it's important to make things that are flawed and like sometimes your mistakes can lead you to, you know, making even better art in the future, which I think it's really easy as an artist to be obsessive as a perfectionist of this is only good if everyone likes it. This is only good if it reaches certain metrics. If it, you know, if I have this like tangible proof that people like it and I'm doing a good job, but yeah, so I, I just thought that was like a really cool perspective. And she obviously has just such a reverence for storytelling and for making art. And I was just reading about her and I was so inspired by her. And like I said, I just can't wait to dive in and and listen more to Kate Bush. And yes. but I feel like I can't do it passively. Like I need no. the time to sit and read the lyrics and read where every single thing is coming from or else I don't think I'm doing it justice. That is a very good point. I, yeah, I feel like even though I added a running up that hill back to some playlists, you know, for the summer, I oh, think we're definitely going to have to. I've definitely done that myself. Yeah. It's so good. <laughs> we're going to have to throw on the whole discography and figure out this whole 24 hours of music deal that I'm honestly. <laughs> this is like kind of a side note, but it reminded me when you're talking about like writing songs about storytelling, how you actually wrote one for me for one of my projects. Yeah. <gasps> I yeah, you know I forget about that song. I love that song. It's a good song. Uh, yeah, I did a project on Ted Bundy's victims because no one ever knows their names. Everyone always just talks about him. And I asked Sadie to write a track for it. Yeah, I'm being so yeah. overwhelmed by that because I was like, I haven't done this like in this way before. But yeah, it was great. I remember being like, how the heck am I going to write a song about Ted Bundy and the victims of Ted Bundy? Well. Kate Bush gives me permission to. And I didn't write about Ted Bundy. Go. It was, I, I made no. a very point to not talk about the serial killer. <laughs> yes. Which is what I did too in the project. It turned out really cool. I yeah. it, I lost the email that was connected to like the YouTube link. So it got taken off of YouTube. But, it had but like, I still have the video. You but should repost it. It didn't yeah. have like 10K views, which like isn't bad. Like that's good. No, it wasn't bad at all. Yeah. But yeah. You should post it again. That I love fun. that song. I know. That was actually, I fully produced that myself too, which I don't normally Mm -hmm. do that at all. So it was great. It was fun. Yeah. So, I mean, if you want to release like a cool storytelling album, you already have a song you can put on. I already have a song about Ted Bundy victims. Mm -hmm. Saying it that way makes it sound (laughs) more grim than, I actually, I did a songwriting (laughs) round a couple years ago and I sang that song. I feel like it was, it was a good one to do for a songwriting round, you know, where. Yeah, that makes sense. It was about storytelling. Anyways, so (laughs) love Kate Bush. (laughs) Definitely. 
I'm way excited to learn even more about her. Like me too. What a wonderful, incredible influence on the world. Yeah. Like, I think this is our longest podcast episode in a while. And I still feel like I didn't. (laughs) I'm like, I got more to say here. (laughs) I got so much more to dive into. After learning about her, I'm even more convinced that that was the perfect song for them to choose for a horror film to save someone's life. Mm -hmm. I'm so on board. (laughs) I agree. Cool. Well, thanks, everyone, for tuning in and listening. I hope you enjoyed learning more about Kate Bush. If you're new here, join us. Keep on listening. We talk about new women artists every week. I guess not new artists, forgotten, ignored women artists that deserve more mm-hmm. credit. And it's cool that now we're seeing Kate Bush getting some more credit in live yes. in live time. We're always here for the revival. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always a very wonderful thing to see. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, and feel free to join us over on Instagram. We're just more than amused.podcast. We'd love to have you there. Mm-hmm. Um, we post a lot of stuff throughout the week, just more about the episode. You actually get to see like photos, videos when I can post them without getting copyright struck. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and anything else that kind of helps round out the storytelling sense. This is just audio format. So yep. cool. cool. And we will be back next week with a new episode. Bye. Goodbye. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.